0: The following views expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent the views of DOD Arts its components.
1: Pay attention because you are now listening to Permission to Speak Freely. Hey
0: Damon, so remember when I was telling you that I went to a course recently and it, and it changed my life? You know, like, uh, it's crazy because like, almost every element of this course is like elements that like I've heard before or I've experienced before. I read them in like a self-help book, but like my like for some reason they all clicked in this course. And, uh, it honestly, it changed my life. It changed how I deal with my family, my, my wife, um, my dog, even, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? And I, and I think, um, it like, it was meant for work and it impacted like everybody that was in this course, Like at the end of it, like they all had things where they was talking about like it it would improve their relationships. And every every relationship, it was like it was had to do with their like family. Somebody was like, Hey, this is gonna make me a better father. Somebody said this is gonna make me a better uncle, aunt. So I just thought it was very cool. And there's some concepts in this course that like I'll never forget. So I I I just knew like middle of day one. That somehow I had to reach out to the facilitator, if that's the best thing to call it, of the course, which is Chip Hugh, um, and we have Chip uh, Hugh with us now. So, hey, thanks for joining us, Chip. I appreciate you for for you know coming with us. We got nothing going on, to, to, <laughs> nothing going on. So I appreciate you, man. Thanks for come checking us out.
2: Well, hey, look, I I know it's not true. You have nothing going on. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty tough to get. It on your calendar, my friend, but thank you. <laughs> thank you all for having me. I, I'm, I'm graciously uh, just humbled to have, to be able to be part of the, the conversation.
0: Yeah. And the course was outward. It was the Outward Mindset course uh, by Arbinger. Is, is that, is that the way you say it? Arbinger Institute?
2: Yes. It's the Arbinger Institute. Absolutely. Okay.
0: And um, th- th- this course, right. And I'm going to just kind of get right to it, right. This course changed your life too, didn't it?
2: And so many ways, my friend, um, I actually, um, the reason that I facilitate this work is because of the profound impact it's had on my personal life and my professional life, but most especially my personal life, much like you, mm-hmm. right? I didn't go into my first experience with Arminger expecting it to impact my personal life. I was thinking, you know, this is clearly a work course. It's a product mm-hmm. to help me be a better leader, but actually man, it transformed me in so many ways as a husband and a father, which I would argue are also leadership positions, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Critical leadership positions. So yeah, it, it it means a lot to me and it means a lot to me to be able to share it with folks. Yeah.
0: And you got a military background, correct?
2: Yes, sir. Army? Yes. I went in the army in, uh, at 17 years old. Damn. That was my first experience with... Uh, we really structured discipline, I would say. I was a little bit of a, of a wild child uh, mm-hmm. growing up, a little uh, little unbounded, I would say. But the military certainly helped me uh, think more differently about uh, the kind of person I wanted to be and the routines I needed to maintain to, to realize that person, that identity.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that was the first thing that um, kind of stuck with me was you did talk a little bit about your upbringing on, um, on day one of the course. And um it's crazy. So before before I even go too far, right? It's crazy to like get like I know how it feels to like, you know, be a part of something and you gotta represent like this thing. Um, but like, man, sometimes people could like become like a fan of you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The person, a facilitator, the person that's talking about you, like, hold on though, I'm still here representing like our mindset, this Armager Institute. Like, this is you know, the platform that I'm representing. So um, but what compelled me in the beginning was the story of your uh, your upbringing. Can, can we talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, Dama, we can talk about anything you want to talk about, my friend. Okay. So you just tell me. You tell me how deep you want to go. Uh, like I told you when we met, I'm an open book. Uh, you yeah. know, I found out the best way to communicate the essence of our work is just to be transparent with folks and be vulnerable. So I'm going to throw myself on you and trust you to catch me, man.
0: Okay. <laughs> Yeah.
2: So let's start with uh, childhood. Parents? Yeah. So my father was a career criminal and a clinical psychopath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother suffered from bipolar and schizophrenia for her entire life. Uh, and we were when I was born, we were homeless. Yeah. And we bounced around a bit, mostly along the eastern part of the United States, moving from state to state. You know, my father uh, would get warts for his arrest and we'd just move to another state or we would get taken away due to abuse and placed in foster care or into children's home. Then once my dad was able to finagle his way back into our life, uh, we would move immediately. And that cycle would kind of start over again. Yeah. Uh, my dad was really abusive in all the classical ways, uh, put a lot of marks on me and my mom, especially, but he abused all of uh, my siblings. And it was just a really crazy first 11 years uh, introduction to life that you know, you know. As people hear that story and sometimes they think, "Wow, you know, they, they, you know." Their hearts open up, but but look, compared to what I've seen, and I, I think we had it good uh, compared to a lot of folks. Like it certainly wasn't. Look, yeah. I mean, I've seen some pretty tough stuff. People suffer wildly. I had the benefit of having some really key people in my life throughout those experiences, like foster parents that stepped up for a time. Uh, you know, or police officers that took my dad to jail and got us to shelter, um, things of that nature. So it was, it was an interesting first 11 years for sure. And and I'm willing to answer any specific questions you have about that experience. But, but in a nutshell, it was bouncing around. Uh, you know, most of our day consisted of finding ways to make money to get food, uh, or to make sure that we had shelter. Uh, and then of course, helping my dad, um, evade the law. Yeah. Was any other family around? Yeah, no. So my dad isolated my mom from her family intentionally. And back then, as you know, it was much easier to do. We're talking the 70s. So there wasn't this interconnectivity we have in in terms of uh, media, right? Cell phones and things of that nature. So he intentionally kept her isolated from her family so that we didn't have that type of support. Yeah.
0: So were you like, at some point, just like, was it like motel to motel or living out of cars? kind of lifestyle?
2: Yeah. Motel would be like a, yeah, that'd be an exception. Most of the time it was a station wagon or a van. Uh, Again, we could crash at uh, missions uh, Mm -hmm. and we could crash at Salvation Armies a lot of times. Salvation Armies would open themselves up if they saw you had children, uh, especially. Uh, They would get you, you know, they would get you in there and we might, we might bunk, bunk there at the Salvation Army for a couple days. And then you know, with with missions, you could go into a mission to get food. Um, mm-hmm. I still I have this like um, just this reflexive, emotional reaction when I walk into a mission or a shelter because the smell hits me, and it's yeah. like a nostalgia, like it's the same smell I remember. Just bodies crowded close together. You know, it, it's just uh, I don't know how to explain it, but but I get I get this kind of emotional, intuitive reaction to this day you know, when I walk in a place like that. And I only experienced that again for the first 11 years of my life.
0: Yeah. So here's a question, right? I'm going to frame it a little bit. Um, I think I was probably 19 in the the military already. Um, Probably had got my first like PPV. as like a little apartment for us. Um, And that was the first time that I like knew that I was responsible for my own survival. You know what I'm saying? Like even like growing up as a teenager in Philly, it was crazy where I lived, Um, and you could get killed any day or something like that. But like to to know that like everything that I do, like my my output is dependent on my input. I was probably 19 years old. I'm assuming you were a whole lot younger um, when you understood that you were responsible for your own survival. Am I correct or am I
2: off? Yeah, you're you're correct, Uh, Damo. I I don't know how to talk about this stuff. Uh, what I mean by that is I don't have the language to properly mm-hmm. explain a lot of what I experienced. It's much too sublime, but but I, I have memories of being very, very young. And, and doing the math and thinking back, I had to be four or five years old when these memories are coming on. Yeah, And um, it, it almost seems impossible. Um, but I remember, you know, my dad, like, you know, he didn't much care for books. and. I used to hide out in libraries to get away from them. And, and I just started reading at a really young age, well before I understood what I was reading, right? Mm-hmm. And I became kind of autodidactic, kind of self-taught. And before I even, I didn't go to kindergarten. Before I went to first grade, I was already reading at probably a second or third grade level. Yeah. And I, I found in books, like some of these ideas of like, look, you, you need to, especially like religious books, you know, this idea that, you know, you really need to take responsibility. And that's something that echoes in my head is this idea of responsibility. Take on as much responsibility as you could possibly bear. And that's that's the secret. That's the secret to transcending whatever level of suffering that you, you're currently experiencing. And I, I don't remember. I'm sure it was a amalgamation of wise people sending me that message, things that I read, experiences that I had. All those things kind of coalesce together. I'm sure to mm-hmm. form kind of a budding philosophy of life that has guided me ever since, and I've refined it, meeting people like yourself and and you know experiences in the military and other mentors I've had. I've refined it, but at its core, it still revolves around the idea of accepting personal responsibility for my well-being, yeah. and um, that that is something that you know it it just continues to guide me and direct me today.
0: Hmm. So who was the first adult in your life that you felt an expression of love from?
2: Well, my mom. Uh, mm-hmm. My mom loved us dearly. And, you know, this is the first time I'm speaking to anybody since my mom passed. So I've always kind of been really careful about the way I talked about my mom, my relationship with her, because out of respect for her being alive, um, you know, I certainly... You know, I certainly always tried to present her as, you know, you know, she was a godsend in the middle of all of this this yes. trauma. The truth is, she had a good heart, and she wanted to love us very deeply. And she sacrificed and did some things uh, in order for us to survive that I will never forget. But she was limited in her capacity due to some of her mental illnesses and issues and challenges she had. Yeah. You know, to be, well, I think about my wife, Shelly and the way she parents my stepson, Connor. And I think of her as being like this ideal mother figure, right? This balanced approach to raising him, this unconditional positive regard for him as a person that helps her love him, guide him, show him empathy, but also instill the appropriate amount of discipline, you know, to bound his discretion as a young kid. Because, you know, when we're young kids, we're... well. It's a dangerous combination of not knowing enough and thinking you know it all, right? Yeah. So compared to Shelly, my mom, I would say, struggled a bit. Um, but but love, yeah, man, look, it's kind of funny. Um, I've never told this story, but just one example, right? We're hungry. We hadn't eaten in a couple of days. My mom takes us into this diner. It was kind of like maybe a Waffle House type situation. I don't know what it was, but it was like that and she basically just says order whatever you want and we're like oh wow okay we're, we're, we're eating waffles and all this food right all this stuff it's all this food and she's like just drinking water and and, and when she you know when she gets when we're, you know, she makes sure we've got everything to eat we've eaten you know enough everybody's full and she just kind of says is everybody you know pretty good yeah she goes well mom's gonna go to the bathroom and she, she turns in the booth and she spills some water out of her glass onto the floor and then she like goes to the bathroom and she comes back and slips in it. Mm. And she hits the ground hard, right? And people come running over and she's just making this big scene about the water on the floor. And you know what happens next, right? The manager yeah. comps the meal. And, uh, and and it's like, we now I'm thinking back on this and we've told this story at family reunions and stuff and everybody's kind of, you know, matching up their recollection, right? So we're pretty sure we've got a pretty accurate, memory yeah. of it, right? And mom would just laugh, you know, whenever we brought that up. <laughs> but but that was like an example, right? That and go and going to an airport. We'd never been on a plane. She mm-hmm. she goes to an airport and she has a checkbook. And she says, she says, uh she asked the people at Delta, will you take a check for some airplane tickets? So this is back in the day, right? You can go up to the counter, buy the ticket. And and if my sister remembered remembered the story and shared it. At a family reunion, and then it came back to us. And she basically, they said, Yeah, ma'am, we'll take a check. And she goes, She starts writing this check for ever many, much money it costs to buy plane tickets for four kids and, and her. And she stops and she looks at the person working the counter and she says, I gotta tell you, this check, it ain't worth the paper it's printed on. But there's a man coming after us, and if he finds me, he's gonna kill me. And I really need your help. And they immediately comped tickets, got us on a plane, you know, got us, uh, I think we went from Florida to Tennessee at the time or something to get away from my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so those are just a couple examples, right? Just just kind of anecdotes. But but my my mom, back to your original question, she was without a doubt the first person I would say I experienced love from. Yeah. Uh, and I felt bonded too. But there were many more people throughout my life that were probably better positioned. hmm you know, to give you that type of love. The type of love I think that you're talking about, right? The type of yeah. guidance and, and um, yeah, you know, just more of a mature type of, of love.
0: Yeah. So after, after 11, you start entering like your adolescence and your teenage years and going to high school and everything that comes along with
2: that. And that's happening in foster care? Yeah. So it was at 11, but what had happened was my dad gotten us back. He'd moved us to this little bungalow in Homestead, Florida. Mm-hmm. My mom got a call to my uncle, and, and my uncle John was the only person in the world my dad was ever afraid of. And my mm-hmm. uncle John shows up in this big Cadillac at this bungalow, and he walks in, and my dad's sitting at, at this little table drinking a six-pack. And he looks at my dad, and he says, Vern, that's what we called my old man was Vern. He says, Vern, I'm here to get marrying the kids. If you get it from that table, it'd be the last damn thing you ever do. Mm. and my dad sat there drinking his beer, and he had and my uncle had a bunch of 50-gallon trash bags and loaded up all the clothes that we had, anything that we had, a couple of toys here and there, and throws them in the back of the Cadillac and takes us off to uh, the country, Iberia, mm. Missouri, uh, for those military folks that are listening about 22 miles from Fort Leonard Wood. That's the best way I can explain it. And you know they call that Fort Lost in the Woods. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere for sure. Uh, and then, then from then on, we were poor on assistance, what have you, mm-hmm. uh, but we were well taken care of. We were sheltered. I got to work hauling hay for a nickel of bale or clearing fence line for a buck, quarter, buck a quarter an hour. And, yeah. and, and I was able to supplement kind of on the sly the assistance we got from the government. And my uncle always helped out too. We had a house to live in. It was poor, but man, totally different experience after age 11.
0: Yeah. But those first, I mean, those first eleven years—that's the formative, formative years in life, like where you really establish your foundation. And <clears throat> I mean, I, I would assume your foundation, you know, <laughs> would, like would be like very weight bearing, like like yo, know, I I could deal with this, I could take this, and maybe like a harder like, and I, and I mean, probably around by like sixteen years old, like a harder exterior, because it's like I I have had to like protect myself, be responsible for myself, uh, figure out how to read books on my own. Um, So this is how I see the world at this certain kind of time in life, right? Um, And then you enter the army at some point?
2: Yeah. So uh, to your point about a hard exterior, uh, I I had a a real violence problem. I was arrested twice before I was 16 for fighting. Mm. I was extremely insecure. And a hair trigger wasn't a big kid, but, but I was mean. Yeah. When I needed to be. And, and, and so very, very, I've worked hard my whole life to domesticate what I would call an over identification with my emotions, especially anger, mm-hmm. which, as you know, results from, from fear and insecurity mostly. Um, I heard, I heard, I heard Jay Z say something like, uh, in an interview, he said something like, when I was a kid, we used to get in a lot of fights on the street. A lot of the fights would start with someone saying, what are you looking at? What are you yep. looking at? And, and Jay-Z, as I recall the interview, says something like, it hit him one day. Because he's very insightful, if you ever heard him yep. kind of lay it out, right? He said, like, it, it hit me one day. They thought I saw them. Mm. What are you looking at? They thought I saw them. All their fears, all their yeah. insecurity, right? They, they and they they were they were that was what they were resisting was me was being vulnerable, mm. and that's what was triggering the fight. So I could identify with that, right? Kind of yeah. post hoc, because of course I didn't know about Jay Z when I was a kid. I don't think he knew about Jay Z when I was a kid. <laughs> um, we're a little older. I'm a little older than he is. But so that happens, right? So so my mom wants to take us to Ohio on a vacation. You know, we're going to go to Ohio on a vacation. She loads up in a car. We're mm-hmm. going to see some family. I didn't know she was in a manic phase. And we drive off and she gets into a crash, a serious crash in Ohio. She's institutionalized because mm. she was impersonating an FBI agent, uh, in the middle of an intersection. Yeah. Uh, pulled a gun out like the whole nine. I had a hunting, like a shotgun for hunting in the trunk. She pulled that out. And so she gets put in institution. We get stranded in Ohio. I end up living with a half brother, uh, for my junior year, Mark, that, you know, this is my mom's son from an earlier marriage before my dad had met her. Uh, my dad and her were never married. We didn't know that. We found that out later. She thought they were, they never were. He was married to another woman, had another yeah. family. And so, uh, so I ended up in Ohio, I turned 16 there, and then finished up high school at 17 and went in the Army. Uh, yeah. Kind of as a way to start, you know, back again to your point, to kind of start getting some organization in my life and trying to get myself under control and wanting to serve. And I wasn't old enough to be a police officer, you know, like, like the police that I saw when I was a kid pulled us out of bad situations. So I went in the army to be a police officer.
0: Yeah. Cause uh, at you attributed, 17. you attributed police officers to a lot of what you saw when you were a kid, right? Because they, they were there for help, helping you when you needed them.
2: hundred percent, man. That's why, you know, when we could we could talk like for days on this topic, I'm not going to do that to you, but I, I struggle a lot. Right. I struggle a lot because I realized my experience of the police wasn't everybody's experience of the police. Mm -hmm. You know? And it hasn't been my experience of the police since I was a cop for 30 years. You know, I saw good and bad. Yeah. When I was a kid, all I saw was good. Uh, all I saw was we were in a bad situation. These men and women would show up and we would be safe. And I associated them with protectors. And and so that was kind of like, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be that protector. I didn't want to be that fragile kid from as early as I can remember. I never thought about doing anything different. Yeah. Did you ever see dad again? Yeah, the day he died, um, which it's kind of a, our, our family. It's a, our family. It's kind of a, a weird topic because I told my dad if I ever saw him again, I'd kill him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean it figuratively. Uh, you know, as much as a kid understands those kind of things, um, he had the abuse had escalated to a really bad point. And he did some things that, that in my mind at that time were unforgivable. Yeah. And, and the, well, the next time I saw him, he did die, but he actually had, was suffering from brain cancer at the time. And a brother, uh, that, that's now in my life, Tim, who is my exact age, you know, he, he was uh, born to my, Dad's wife, Uh, he brought him to see us as adults uh, because he was dying. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being the last person in the room with him, you know, uh, when he passed away at my brother's house. So between the day that my uncle took us and the day that he passed, I didn't see him at all.
0: Yeah. So um, what was that? Like, can you explain that feeling when you saw your dad? Because I'm thinking about life, right? Last time I see you, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. I'm holding on to this like for years and years and years, but I'm also living my life. Like I'm growing up, aging. Did you, uh, you, did you already have a family by the next time you saw them?
2: Yeah, I was married with a, with a couple of young, very young children.
0: Yeah, and, so I'm growing uh, up, aging, kids, life, everything's good. And then, boom, here's like this ghost from my past somewhere at my front door, figuratively or whatever. Um, wh- how'd you feel?
2: Rage. Um, So my dad was always with me. Mm -hmm. And to extend your metaphor of a ghost, he haunted me. His memory haunted me. I let his memory haunt me and I let it turn me into something that, well, I've created a lot of damage in my wake. Um, I destroyed two marriages. I had no relationship with my kids. When it came to leadership, people only did what I said when I was around because I was a caustic, toxic person. And that was because I blamed my dad and all that my dad did for my inability to be the kind of person I thought I ought to be. Any mistake I had in a relationship, right? Uh, Anytime I failed to live up to an obligation, I had my dad's memory to blame. I could, I could recall him in a moment and go, how, you know, how do you expect a kid who grew up like this with a parent (laughs) like this to do any better than I'm doing? It was a perfect excuse for failing. And so here this man is in front of me, right? But he's not the big, scary demon that I carried around with me. He's a frail old man, Mm -hmm. his body riddled with cancer. And I was angry on a couple of fronts. I was angry because I wanted him to be that formidable memory that I carried around. I wanted to have something to battle, some outlet for my rage, but I didn't have it. Right? Mm -hmm. And then I felt even more angry because I had a, a modicum of pity seeing him in that condition. Seeing him at the end of his life,
0: yeah.
2: and the last thing he did was ask me for forgiveness, and I didn't give it. You know, and I thought, you know, I I, uh-huh. I probably said some pretty hard things to him. That was probably the last things that he heard, and and I thought, I thought when he died, like that would set me free.
0: Yeah,
2: right, but it didn't. I continued on the path, and I continued blaming him for all of my problems. Right. All of my damaged relationships, all of my failures to live up to my obligations, it was all on him. Right. I had the perfect patsy. I, I, I colluded with him when he was alive and I colluded with him when he was dead. Yeah. Did you ever come around and forgiven him? Yeah. Man, nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> I did forgive him. Mm. But forgiveness is a weird word. So, what do I mean by forgave him? Uh, I was actually at Fort Leavenworth auditing a workshop. The the uh, a version of the workshop you you set through, Dama, when you and I met. And um, as you know, being in that workshop, you feel a connection with people. You feel a connection with the material. It just creates a kind of a space that opens you up. And that happened to me. And my dad happens to be buried at Fort Leavenworth. And mm-hmm. during the lunch break, I went. Over to where he's buried. And I did. I went to his grave and I forgave him. And here's what I mean by that. By forgiving him, I mean, I ceased to blame him for all of my issues. I asked, I asked for his forgiveness for me carrying around the memory of him and using it to excuse me from my responsibilities. And I told him, I will no longer continue to blame you. I have no idea what your life was like, but from what I've learned, it wasn't very easy either. And yes, you made some decisions that were, that were really horrible and impacted a lot of people very negatively, especially, you know, me being one of them. And while I didn't control what happened to me and how you victimized me, I am a hundred percent responsible for what meaning I make out of that. Mm -hmm. I am a hundred percent responsible for what I do about what happened to me. And what I did was be a coward. And continue to blame him as a way of sheltering me from responsibility for living forward. And what I did that day in forgiving him was I took back, I took back responsibility for myself moving yeah. forward. And to this day, I can talk about my dad like I am now with you and I'm, I'm fine. Uh, you know, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. I don't feel all that rage and all that hatred anymore. I let that go. I laid that down and, and yeah, I, I forgave him when he, when he, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I was telling know Damon, that,
0: right? I was telling Damon, uh, I think yesterday or something. I don't know if you noticed, but when when it's a course like that, that's about uh, developing and implementing like a different mindset or something. I'm gonna kind of skip around for a second. A lot of people that go to so so in this course that that you taught, it was a bunch of command leadership. It was uh, commanding officers, command master chiefs, executive officers, uh, executive directors. And then I was there, right? (laughs) And I was there because I was, uh, so I was there because I was standing in for my command master chief at the time. But when when you have to, you know, go and facilitate a course like this or lead a workshop like this, it's people there that when they found out that they had to go to the course, they automatically had a plan to be resistant, right? So before you even walk in the door, it's people that started their day like, what the hell is the Navy trying to teach me today? Right. I'm going to go ahead and already be resistant. And it was a few in our class, in my opinion, from my viewpoint, a few that automatically was like, no, it's nothing new that the Navy could, could teach me. And even some of them left with <laughs> some of their thoughts being you know, changed. But I was telling Damon, like, I, like, the way Chip handled it, like when the people, some people were getting too much into who they were I'm like, I, I, I was like, Chip did a really good job kind of like controlling that, never got too frustrated and stuff like that. But do you like, and I'm sure you do, but are you prepared for that resistance before you walk into
2: one of these uh, workshops? Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. No one resists it more than me. Mm. I look, I struggle with these truths all the time because they, they call me to take responsibility. No one needs what we talked about more than me. Yeah. And I have my, I have a, my, my heart is so full of compassion for the people that come into the class resistant. Mm. I I relate to them so much. It is a constant struggle to keep yielding to the truth. It is a constant struggle because, because, because it's painful. It's painful to understand that, you know, I have more power than I think I have over situations, which means I have more responsibility than I'm usually willing to take. And that's a hard pill to swallow. So when I see someone come in and resist it, I'm like, yeah, i want to put my arms around them yeah. figuratively. Right. You know, my heart opens up to them because I've been there. I'm there. I've got people like you, my wife, my friends, my family, everybody I've met on this journey that are around me, that support me. They count on me and they encourage me. I mean, if it wasn't for that system, I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably sit in the back of the class with my arms crossed.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and then and then back to the forgiveness point, um, real quick. I had a a friend, like a friend of mine at work. His father, um, he was telling me his father was on a death his his deathbed, and he's like, "Yeah, he only wants me to talk to him because he feel bad because he got you know he got cancer and stuff like that." And me a while ago, um, I, I kind of came to the realization that I can't hold grudges against somebody who did something when they was younger than me. Right. And I, you know, and I just can't, you know, it's hard. Like, it's like um, my, my, like my dad, for instance, like he might've held a grudge or something against his dad who was like 18 when he started having kids. Like he was a teenager, you know, between like 16 and 20, he had like four kids. Um, And and it's like, he did things at like 18, 19, 20, that of course, like he didn't really know and understand what he was doing. So to 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 grow up and be a fifty year old because I I can't look at it like I'm because we put too much weight on our parents right we Mm -hmm. I I feel like we do like we our parents like the things that they did wrong or the things that they didn't understand we connect that with every decision we make in our life where it's like all right take it away from it being your parent look at it like it's an eighteen year old (laughs) like how upset would you at sixty years old be with this eighteen year old that you know cannot make you know really good decisions. Or whatever, like that. It's like, yo, your mom was twenty three when she did that, dude. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, stop it. Do you see twenty three year olds now? <laughs> like, <laughs> do you see them? <laughs> like, 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 how serious would you take a twenty three year old? Why is you? Why are you letting this like affect your entire future? So, th- so that was like kind of something that I kind of uh, took on uh, with myself to help me throughout the course of my life.
3: And you know. What? I think it's really powerful, something that you mentioned about um, the the manner in which you forgave and what you were actually forgiving for. A lot of times we say we forgive someone, but we're not actually forgiving them In, in the manner that you said, like, I'm forgiving you and I'm no longer giving you the power to or allowing myself to um let this be an excuse for how I act and let it affect how I how I how I am in the future and it's resonating so much to me because with my father it was like the same type of thing he passed away I thought I forgave him but then now I'm questioning like did I really So that was just very, I didn't even mean it. Why the hell am I crying on here? (laughs) (laughs) But that was just something that's very, like it blew my socks off just now. I'm like, damn. And now I'm really like questioning myself. Like, Hmm. did I actually forgive? And I think that the real answer that I can give now that I thought that I had gave a long time ago. Oh yeah, I forgave my dad. I'm like, I'm I'm good, I'm good. But I don't think I actually did. And and maybe I didn't do it because I didn't I didn't have the right mindset of how I was trying to forgive. I was more so like, oh, I forgive you for what you did. I'll I'll try to forget about it, but you don't really forget. And I think I've been tricking myself to think. Oh, no, just just think of, just don't think about it. Like just let it go, but it, it's not that easy. Like the the forgiveness really has to come from a place of taking responsibility for your mm-hmm. own actions.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And deciding at this point forward, I am going to live by my own rules. I am I am in control of my own emotions. Um, so thank thank you Chip <laughs>
2: for, the, for oh, my therapy my session. <laughs> thank you for your vulnerability and sharing that. Oh my, like you don't know what that means to me to hear you share that and the way you articulated it. It, it helps me get clarity around it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to add a little twist to this uh, because you opened the door just to crack. Um, a little bit of nuance when we're talking about forgiveness. Oftentimes, and this is a this is an irony of humanity. Oftentimes, I think I'm upset at other people because of something they've done to me when I'm actually upset at them because of something I'm failing to do for them. Mm. Um, and I could give plenty of examples of that from my everyday life. But I think with my dad, one of the ways to think about what was happening there is that as much as I was demanding, demanding that he apologize to me in some way, I understood, although I didn't have the words for it, that I needed to apologize to him. I needed to seek his forgiveness. That's crazy, right? Right. What did I need to be forgiven for? I needed to be forgiven for blaming him for all of the bad things I'd done in my life. I was using him again as a scapegoat Hmm. for my failure to accept responsibility. Did he mistreat me? Absolutely, he did. And he had to own that but I also mistreated him by Mm -hmm. using him as an excuse for my mistreatment of other people. Mm. I had done violence toward him with my heart. I had returned hate for hate. You know, I read somewhere one time that the three hardest things in the world to do are not physical acts. They're not acts of even moral courage. They are, well, they are this, to return love for hate, to include the excluded, and to admit when I'm wrong. Hmm. And what I had done with my father is I had returned hate for hate. And I'd use that as an excuse for mistreating other people, to rationalize it. So, look, you open up that door, and oh, my God, thank you so much for just being that vulnerable. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like in real time. Uh, but but these, that's just another way. I'm going to throw that out, out to you as another way of thinking about it.
3: Right.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to add my
1: story time <laughs> to this, man. You know, like with my dad, so I haven't seen my dad in like 30 plus years, right? I pretty much have seen him like three times my entire life, right? So I never talk about this though. I like never talk about this. The only people I talk about this to is like, my siblings right it's like 6 of us now they didn't forgave this dude like they good to go they got some type of relationship with him but not me right i'm that guy uh uh-uh. uh this dude like left us long time ago didn't turn didn't look back type stuff right so he been reaching out he's yeah. getting older too right so he reach out to me he do all this stuff and i'm like uh uh-uh. uh so the problem I got, I, I'm told, I have no ill will about not reaching out. Like right now, I think I'm starting to come around though. Because the only reason why I'm starting to come around a little bit is because of my brothers. Like, and they all older than me. So they always like, they kind of like a father figure to me. They like, boy, hush and call your dad. You know what I mean? That's kind of how they, how we kind of communicate. Boy, hush, call, you, call your dad. But I still, like to this day, I have not called him not one time, haven't talked to him. And he be like, reaching out, reaching out, hey, call me, hit me up, hit me up, blah, 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 all this. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm like in that resentment mode right now. And I'm still here. I can't believe I'm still at it right now. And I, I got kids and, and everything, but I'm still like right now at that resentment, like how you, you know, left us and how that happened and and didn't look back. And, and, and it's just like, no, I'm not finna call you. I'm not finna be, you know, you know, your favorite son and, and you can, you can feed me these dreams. That's kind of how I feel about it. You ain't nothing to feed me no dreams right now on, on what happened and why you did it. I don't want to hear it. You know, like to, to be honest, I just don't want to even hear it. But with that all being said, I feel like the time is now though, you know, I just feel like it's, it's, it's almost, you know, I'm in my forties now. So, okay, let me, let me, let me talk to this guy and find out what's going on. We make him build some type of relationship. I feel like I'm almost <laughs> there. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm almost yeah. there. I'm almost there. Yeah.
2: Powerful. It's so powerful. And, you know, it's um, the one caveat. And it's, it, I, I never know where these conversations are going to go, by the way. I <laughs> right. Mean, like I, like when I came on, I know what we're going to talk about, right? But, yeah. but it's so funny that we went here. But it's like, I, I always make the point <laughs> oh, when I right. talk about forgiveness and seeing people's people and having unconditional regard for their humanity. That isn't a soft thing. Compassion isn't a soft thing. And sometimes, sometimes the right thing to do is to sever a relationship. But I, if I have to sever a relationship, I want to do it with a, with, with clear eyes and and, and, a, and, a, and a light heart, right? Like I, I want to do it because it's the right thing to do for both of us. There are toxic people in the world and sometimes, you know, you're better off not having them in your life, but, you don't want to carry around. I'm saying like I'm prescribing something to someone. I'm not saying that. I'm talking to myself. I don't want to carry around the burden of that hate and resentment because it infects every other area of my life. I can't compartmentalize it like I think I can. Just like if I have a bad day Mm -hmm. at work and things are stressful, I'm carrying that home. You know, I'm carrying that home. I'm walking in. Maybe, maybe I'm just mentally exhausted or emotionally wrung out. And I can't be there for my family because I'm dragging whatever happened around, you know, at work around with me. Well, look, if I had this relationship, you know, like with my dad or Damon, like with your dad and that that is, that is like a weight, I think around our necks yeah. we're carrying around in a sense. Right. And any amount of energy that we expend maintaining, because it takes energy, to maintain that resentment, right? Mm-hmm. It's energy we can't direct toward more productive things, more productive relationships, right? So the, so the idea of this forgiveness, right? I'm setting that down. I'm letting that be. It doesn't mean I roll over and I let myself be abused again. It doesn't mean that I get into this codependent relationship with somebody that's unhealthy for me and them. It just means that I see them as a person. I regard their humanity. I look at them compassionately and I might have to draw a boundary in our relationship. I'm going to have to reinforce a boundary in our relationship, but I'm not carrying around that resentment that ends up poisoning me and other people in my life. I don't know if that's helpful. Um, You know, you took me there with with what you said and I just got to point out, man, thank God for your brothers um, and thank God for your willingness to yield to their influence too. um, Independent of how this thing turns out with you and your dad, that's a very personal journey. But having people like that in your life so critical, so critical, so I mean I just when you when you mentioned your brothers, your eyes lit up, and so you know I, I just I went there so yeah yeah
0: yeah and that 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 thing that you were just talking about um about like not like well looking at people as people, but you know you know in the course we learned like people with inward mindsets, they look at people as tools hmm. um you know ways in which Like at work, for instance, like your sellers or, you know, your junior sellers are like just ways in which, ways and means in which you get things done, Done. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then outward people are the, you know, the opposite of that. Like we look at people as people, you know what I'm saying? And consider them and, you know, things of that nature. Um, And it's harder to do. I mean, like we just been talking about, it's kind of harder to do when it comes to like family and parents. I think for me... um, and we could probably make it past this soon, but for me, what taught me to not hold much resentment a, a re- resentment against my father for anything. My my dad always be I like, know you know you guys probably think I'm like that. I'm good, you know what I'm <laughs> saying. But I think what what taught me that was I was my my friend early in my naval career. Again, I grew up in the navy pretty much, but a friend of mine, um, I would hang out with him. He was older than me, and he was dealing with a lot of issues with his kids and their mom, and. And, and then that like in like five days of that, I was like, oh, man, it's another side of this that I don't know about is this side of it or whatever. And just me being with him every day and seeing what he wanted to do and seeing what he couldn't do and then kind of imagining what it might have looked like for the kids. It ain't look however it looked like for me in the car. Mm-hmm. It looked totally different probably for his kids. I was like, yo, there's no way that I could like ever like, you know, hold any kind of will thoughts about my dad or whatever like that. Mm. My brother, right? Another quick story. My brother, he just got a passport, right? He just got a passport. Super excited about his passport, right? Super, like <laughs> way too excited about his passport, right? <laughs> but I'm not, but he said he couldn't get it. I don't know how these things work, but he said he couldn't get a passport because he was in arrears on his um, child support, right? Um, and so he talked to a friend and his friend said, well, how much are you in arrears? Um, now him and his kids mom they don't have a best you know relationship or whatever they can't communicate or whatever and i've thought it was him who couldn't communicate like not her right but in his eyes it's them right so uh, his friend was like well how much is this uh child support so he told him and um and it's in the thousands of course right it, 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 he was like well is what costs more like the passport <laughs> he was like you know the child support of course he was like well what costs more a conversation with you know your kid's mom or you know the child support arrears. It, it, he was like, the child support arrears. He was like, yeah, he was like, you could have such and such. Th-. So he said the amount of money it was, you could have such and such thousand conversations with your kid's mom and it still won't equal up to the amount that the passport is. So why don't you go talk to her? Right? So that's what my brother said. Miraculously, She went to the court and she dropped the child support stuff, right? Miraculously, she did this, like, who who would ever imagine? Like, I I knew she would have. All you had to do was talk. It wasn't her, bro. It was you. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, But his whole thing is, I talked to her, man. I I made it happen. Like, yeah, you built up enough time and thought and responsibility to have a conversation with your kid's mom. And now, voila, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you got your passport. (laughs) <laughs> or whatever like that. Yeah, and and that was another lesson that, you know, that's another lesson that, you know, we kind of, and I, I, I referenced a uh, chip actually, um, outward mindset when I was talking to my brother, cause I was talking about, uh, collusion. I was talking about like the two chairs and, um, how they are facing, um, outward. Like they are not facing each other. And, and the conversation was, you know, how do we turn? So two chairs facing outward is two people at battle. Let's just mm-hmm. say that. Right. Um, and it's like, well, how do we get this to start moving towards a uh, peace? And one of the people in our class was like, um, "Both chairs need to face each other," you know. And Chip was like, "Nah, only one of those chairs, you know, need to turn around. That's the first step in moving towards peace." So that stuck with me too. That was good. I
2: appreciate it, Chip. Oh, that's- yeah, no, good. Well, when we're in when we're in collusion, to your point, right? When we're mm-hmm. doing we're doing battle with our hearts, we're swinging to people with our hearts, right? We're carrying that resentment. The illusion is that both people have to change. That's the yeah. illusion, right? And that certainly would be ideal. But the odds of both people changing at the same time is very slim. Right. So what happens to your point, Amo, is by me deciding to turn my chair first, by me deciding to simply see this person as a person, I have given them a different type of person to respond to. which changes the whole dynamic of that battle we were in. It changes everything. They no longer have a person who's blaming them back to respond to, which creates an invitation for them to consider ways they might need to change. And look, maybe they change, maybe they don't change. Mm -hmm. But 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 I'm not changing so they'll change. I'm changing because it's the right thing to do for them as a person Mm -hmm. to quit that collusion and that battling and perpetuating that that um, that negativity, but no, I I love the way I'm just I'm I'm so honored that you remember this class. I mean, you're like you're like calling stuff out. Like I'm thinking, usually I think, well, well like people no, right? But usually I'm thinking yeah. like people were there, they spend a couple of days, they go back to their busy lives, and this kind of becomes for some of them a footnote. You know, it's like yeah. a thing that I did at work. But you're you're like literally, someone's like got a photographic memory around some of this stuff. So, uh, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey Chip, I'm getting phone calls,
1: Chip. <laughs> When he get out of the class, he's what? calling me up and talk about <laughs> what he's learning. So he into it.
0: It was a and and actually at the command, they like we still every day we got an outward well, every week it's an outward mindset. The chief of staff, he he puts out an outward mindset thought of the week. Um so wow. we've inculcated this into, you know, our command. Um wow. and, yeah, and the collusion part for me was it, it was good because I also connected with we did an exercise and it was like I do. They see. I see. They. I do. They see. I see. They do. Type thing, right? And um, you know, mine. It was personal. I'll always say what it was right now, but it was personal. Um, but so basically, this whole thing was like me responding to the way somebody makes me feel. Right? That's how that. that, This how I'm gonna explain it. It was me responding to the way somebody makes me feel, and then the the second part of this. Was how would somebody on the outside looking in uh, judge my actions if they didn't know that I was responding to the way somebody made me feel? How would they look at me treating this person? Would I look like an asshole? You know,
3: <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, no, every time, right? Because what we did was for this, for this, um, for this particular uh, experiment exercise, we only put. What Like the way we re- react and then we pass the book to somebody else. So they look, they read everything that we do in response to the way like this person made us feel and they wrote pretty much how they observed what we did. And mine is because I just, I just pulled my notes out just now. Mine is rude, disengaged, <laughs> uncaring and unprofessional. And I'm like, damn, but you know, she did this, this to me. <laughs> this is, this is, but they know none of that. All they know is what they see from me. Mm. And that there, that was enough. I was like, yeah, that's, a, that's enough. Like, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that I right.
3: was getting shit
0: that right was it,
1: man. Right.
3: Because I'm a person I mean, that responds
2: negative. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and ult- ultimately, you know, the invitation is this I really don't have control over what happens to me, right? I don't control who cuts me off in traffic. You know, I don't control the person that stands me up when they're supposed to come help me move. You know, I don't control the friend who doesn't return a phone call, but I 100% am responsible for my response to all those things. You know, that's me. So, so really, I can't say to you, Damo, you made me angry. The, The truth is I chose to respond to what you did with anger. Mm -hmm. and look there's responsibility in that but there's also freedom in that because if being angry is something i'm doing then it's something i can stop doing Mm -hmm. i don't have to live that way i don't have to be that way but but the first step is me owning my emotions instead of constantly blaming my reactions on everybody else it's like i've i've volunteered to be a a puppet in some marionette show where all you've got to do is is do something and then i'm i'm just at your beck and call, I'll respond. You can pull my strings and oh wow, look, you control me. I give over control of myself to you by what? Over identifying with my emotions? So, like it's hard. Look, it's simple, not easy. But the truth of the matter is, I've got a choice of how I to how I respond to other people, regardless of how they're treating me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't yeah. mean lay down and be a doormat, but it means just own the fact that I'm responsible and accountable for my emotions and and my response, right? So that, that drill you're talking about, that exercise you're talking about, it just removes the context. And like you said so beautifully, it lets an objective person who's got no skin in the game give yeah. us their feedback on how they would perceive what I was doing. And, and it is, it's, it's, it's simple, but it's, but it's so profound. So two questions, right? It's a kind of
0: how were you introduced to the program and where were you in your life when you were introduced to the program?
2: Okay, well, I'll answer those questions in the reverse order of how they were asked. Mm-hmm. Right? So where, where was I? I was leading a soon-to-be internationally recognized SWAT team that was in deep trouble because they were the most complained-on team in the entire department. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were oh. really creating a lot of damage in their wake because of their lack of relationship in the communities they served. These were mostly underprivileged communities, and they're breaking into houses, uh, wreaking havoc. And on top of all the other things they did as a consequence of their job, they were rude, discourteous, and dismissive of the people with whom they interacted. (laughs) I was put there to fix that, although I was perfectly equipped to make it worse, not fix it, with my attitude. At the same time, I'm living upstairs, and my wife's living downstairs at home, and we're in the middle of deconstructing our second divorce, my second divorce. And my kids wouldn't talk to me. Mm. That's where I was. Hmm. that's where I was in my life, full of blame, full of resentment, full of excuses and pretty bitter and using work as an outlet. At the time I was leading a not-for-profit kind of on the side, using my vacation days to travel and train. And um, I was grounded at an airport, Denver international airport due to high winds. So they grounded the plane And I'm just kind of killing time. And I stumbled into a bookstore. I think it's called The Tattered Cover. I think it's still there. And in the bookstore, I saw this book, Leadership and Self-Deception. And I thought, Leadership and Self-Deception? Well, I was really sucking at leadership, personally and professionally. So that attracted my attention to the book. And the book was really thin. And I like thin books. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I bought the book. And uh, I read the book, I devoured it. And the book told me what was wrong with every single person in my life that didn't agree with me. I'm like, all these idiots need to read this book. This is their problem. <laughs> yeah, I missed the point by about a country mile uh, <laughs> when I first read the book. But that was my introduction to it. And then my future co-author, Jack, I don't know, like if you're, if you're, if you're all religious people or not, um, or spiritual people, I'm not sure, like you know where you're at personally with that. And that's a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. But I, I've struggled with that my whole life, trying to find my, my proper relationship, uh, you know, spiritually with God, right? And I, I know a lot of people believe in providence. Some people believe in karma. There's different ways of expressing this serendipity that happens in life, like when things come together. But I, but I swear to you, I read this book. I get the opposite message from the book that's meant to convey. I get the <laughs> message that everybody else needs to change, not me. Yeah. And then my future co-author, Jack, calls me up and says, hey, um, we've got this workshop we're going to put on based on this book. We'd like you to come audit it. I said, I'm too busy. Uh, I don't have time to do that, Jack. Uh, like we're kicking butt and taking initials. We don't have time to take names. We're that busy, right? Yeah. And and I said, what is this book anyway? And he says, it's Leadership and Self-Deception. I was like, are you <laughs> kidding me? That's my favorite book in the world. <laughs> For a completely different reason than it's his favorite book, right? Yeah. And so that's what got me to come to this workshop. And back then, Dumbo, we were drawing stick figures on paper. We didn't have PowerPoints. Mm. Like, like back then it was very, very personal, you know, yeah. course. And so, so I go, and that started, that started the change. That started to light the fire. I started seeing myself in the work, and that started me making incremental. Kind of adjustments that it continued to this day. To be honest with you, yeah. uh, you know, I've been doing this now for fourteen years, immersed in it, and I think I'm probably batting about six hundred. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I need support. <laughs> I need support. There's <laughs> yeah, days you know. when I slip, right? Yeah, you 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 left like it was so
0: like it was remarkable. It was a story about your wife, like going to war with your wife. Yeah. Um, it had to do with the car. Do you remember yeah. this story at all?
2: Oh, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you real quick, uh, you know, I, I, won't, I won't belabor it like I probably did in the workshop, but essentially I love my wife more than life, man. My wife is my best friend and everybody that meets my wife loves my wife. My wife is, I have had the pleasure of marrying the best person I have ever known. So like when I, when I say I, like, that's my best friend, that's my best friend. Mm-hmm. That is the person I lean on. That is the person I share good news with immediately. That is the person that I share bad news with immediately. That is my person, right? And I'm saying all that to say this, right? There's nobody more important to me in my life than my wife. So I borrow my wife's car and I'm out running some errands and I'm driving back home. And I look down at the gas gauge and the gas gauge is is near E. And the first thing that came to mind for me to do was to put gas in that car for my wife so she didn't have to do it the next morning. But I was trying to get home to watch the Kansas City Chiefs play football. Mm. And it was getting really close Uh. to kickoff. And so I didn't stop. I kept driving. As a matter of fact, I passed three gas stations. I wouldn't even look at the gas stations. I just started playing with the radio every time I go by one. So I didn't have to look at them, right? And I drive home and and I start in my head, I'm like, I start to get angry. I start to like get upset. And I'm like, I start to like tell myself a story. And I was like, well, my wife borrowed my Tahoe last week and she didn't gas it up. Uh, you know, I was like, you know, apparently that's not an expectation we have of each other. And you know what? If I stop and gas this car up, all I'm going to be doing is enabling her. Then she'll be able to, like, not get gas in her car. Well, she going do them out of town. She's going to get out of gas. Like, that's not doing her any favors. Right? And then I said, I literally went here. I went here. I said, what kind of a mother <laughs> lets her car get down to E? What if Connor busted his head and she had taken him to the hospital and she jumped in, had no gas? What kind of a mother does something like that? And so as I'm telling myself the story all my way home, I'm getting mad at my wife. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to war with her in my heart, <laughs> right? And so I pull in to the house and I'm like, I'm like kind of internally, you know, really upset. And I walk into the house and I'm still looking for more reason. I need more reason to keep the fire going, right? And so I walk into the house and she's making chicken wings for the game. Mm. But man, when you're when you're in this state of mind, you can even turn something like that into something negative. So like I look and I see her making chicken wings. And I'm like, oh, yeah, but well she's not making enough for my brother, and she knows my brother might stop by. You know, that's not very considerate. Oh, and I notice she's got uh, you know less barbecue, right, and more like Memphis rub because that's her favorite, right? She's not thinking about me. Uh, and I go and she says, "Hi, honey." And I was like, hey, just kind of a little head nod. <laughs> and I went and I sat down in my chair. And I got my back to her and my whole damn neck's getting red. Right? Like, I don't even want to look at her because she's despicable. Yeah. Right? She's despicable. And so like I'm watching the game, trying to watch the game and she starts doing dishes. And then I really get upset because I'm like, she's only doing that to like put it in my face and I need to be getting up and helping her. <laughs> like that totally could wait till halftime. I know you guys are laughing because this is so ridiculous. It occurred to me. <laughs> Only in retrospect, I thought I was upset at my wife because of something she was doing to me. I was upset at this woman that I love more than life because of something I failed to do for her. Mm -hmm. When I didn't stop and get gas in that car like I felt I ought to do for somebody I love, I had to make it right in my head. I had to justify it. I had to make it straight. And I had to weaponize all this information that I had around me to help me make it straight. Mm. I had to feel right about doing wrong and I used all of those things to feel right about doing wrong. do you see what a crazy cycle I <laughs> kicked off and yeah. here she is at home just thinking everything's great and here I am actually putting some stress in our relationship mm-hmm. right uh-huh. she had nothing to do with it but i but, but I painted myself as a victim and her as the villain yeah. isn't that crazy? Well, I laugh because I've done it a Me million too.
1: times. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're it's so you're poor relatable. Wife. Yeah, it's so relatable. Bro. I'm like at war with her and she is none the wiser. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> she's none the wiser.
2: Well, so, and God help her if she actually does do something, yeah, you know, right. remarkable that I can actually add to the quiver. God help her, man. If she's not perfect. She better be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> she's really going to have a problem. Yeah.
0: So, army... How, how was army, did anything, no, how long, how long were you in army for?
2: You know, so I went in as a reservist, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had, I was uh, kind of mentored by a reserve uh, sergeant in the military police. So he suggested I try the reserves if I like and go active, you know? And so I went in as a reservist, signed up for like a, you know, an eight year commitment and I go in and, you know, basic training at 17. I mean, you know, yeah. it was a shock to yeah. say the least. It was a shock to say the least. Um, and uh, I did, uh, what they call OSUT, one station unit training. So I was there for 26 weeks in one bunk with the same drill sergeants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was, it was a long, it was a long 26 weeks. Uh, (laughs) I ended up, I tried to hide because, because, because the advice that the sergeant gave me that dropped me off the MEP center, he says, Hey, look, you don't want to be in the front of the pack. You don't want to be in the middle, last, the last of the pack. You want to hide in the middle. So don't stand out. That's what he told me. So I'm trying not to stand out. That's my goal. Um, I get tossed off the bus when we show up at our training battalion and I run straight into the senior drill sergeant. And the senior drill sergeant was a woman. And all the other drill sergeants were men. When I slammed into her, I knocked her hat sideways. Mm. And I I, I was fighting the urge to try to fix it. (laughs) And she's staring at me and all she said, and I will quote her to this day. I'm 52 years old. I quote her to this day. She said in the most calm, scary voice I've ever heard, Drill Sergeant Maggard, Drill Sergeant Snowden, Drill Sergeant Montgomery, this private just assaulted me. Mm. And they Mm. came down on me. They just swooped in, hats hit me in the head, screaming and yelling. And I thought, what planet have I landed on? I mean, they, they, I mean, they, they, they were just smoking me, get up, get down, run over here, run over there, Push ups. screaming, huff, huff, huff. We're going to remember that name. And I was like, I failed at my first mission right off the bus. That was hiding in the middle of the pack. Middle of the pack. Yeah. So I went the <laughs> other route and I became distinguished honor graduate. I just nice. worked my, worked my butt off. Right. Did that, went back to the reserve unit, had an opportunity to go active, had a couple other opportunities I turned down. I was focusing on being a civilian cop. Mm -hmm. Then I get activated for Desert Storm. So I end up doing a little over a year on active duty. Uh, Come back, uh, you know, police officer, you know, the rest is, the rest is, you probably have more questions, but from from there, it just kind of kicks off my, my police career. So from, so you go to the workshop, right? Yeah.
0: Um, Coming off that workshop, um, a seed has been planted for change, right? Um, And I asked uh, Damon this question like last week on a separate podcast. How long did it take the people that you led to notice that you changed actually or to believe that you actually
2: changed Yeah well it wasn't like a like it wasn't like a moment where I went from you know just a 180 it was kind of like incremental turning right like so so it was like two steps forward one step back and I had a lot of apologies to make and then I would have to sometimes like I'd have to reset you know, I'd go in, I'd maybe go in pretty good for a couple of days and then I would relapse into my old, yeah. my, my leadership style back then was best characterized, much like my parenting style is closed distance apply force, mm. right? Yeah. And I'd fall back into that, just treating people to your point, like objects, like pieces on a chessboard to move around. I had to apologize and reset, phone a friend, you know? Uh, you know okay. So it took, I would say once it, this actually became characteristic of me, this idea of regarding people as human beings, it seems like duh, but you know, once that became characteristic of me, people started changing immediately around me. They start, you know, they started getting more curious, and you know, relationships started evolving. But I think it was probably a solid—I'd say it was probably a solid six months before I really got my feet under me, and I saw people. Some people like different reactions. Some people drew closer to me, and some people drew away from me. Yep. And some people thought, like, he's just putting on a show. This mm-hmm. isn't going to last, right? He just find a new way to manipulate. Yep. But I'd say after about six months, I started noticing kind of falling into more of a pattern of, you know, working to make that my default way of being. You know, yeah. where I was actually showing up and regarding people as people.
0: Okay. So, so how do you go from being a part of a workshop to being a part of Arbinger Institute?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I took what they sh- taught me in that workshop. And then obviously I attended more workshops because I needed like extra help. <laughs> I needed skill training. Uh, but I took what they did and what they, what they shared with me. And I implemented it in the context of a SWAT team that was troubled. A SWAT team that was really troubled and SWAT teams do a lot of kinetic work again in a lot of underprivileged neighborhoods. And, 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 you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, uh, them not getting complaints and lawsuits, right? Well, I took what they had shared with me and I was able to, thanks to the grace of the people in the SWAT team, I was able to invite them to use what we had learned in our work, in our community. And that team went from the most complained on squad in the entire department to getting zero complaints for three years in a row. They end up going eight years without a single complaint. They end up seizing more guns, drugs, and illicit currency while eliminating complaints. And the only thing we changed was this way of being that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So they could literally show up, even when they were doing hard stuff, like kicking in a house and, 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 taking people to jail. What changed wasn't what they were doing. It was how they were showing up with people in what they were doing. And when that happened and, and, Arbinger saw like, wow, like we've been working in education. We've been working with not-for-profits. We've been working in healthcare and we never thought about the implications of this in policing, you know, in such a kinetic environment. Uh, I became such a supporter that that I just you know we became friends and they invited me in to share my story. And I think it just kind of went from there. And it's just that relationship has evolved over the years to the point that they're my they're my family as much yeah. as anybody's my family, yeah. and and this thing changes it
0: changes the way like people uh, think. like so now our, our people talk like like when when we say the word like inculcate, like it literally changes the culture. You know, after the training, people that were people that were there, they like, oh, here I am. I'm in my box. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because it's, it's in the box. Bu- can you talk? Can we talk a little bit? Of, let's talk a little bit about like the brass tacks of the program. Yeah. Um, first off, what is outward mindset? Yeah. And I know we've been talking about it the whole time. <laughs> like, like, you know, it's super effective. But now it's like, all right, I want to dumb down just a little bit and um kind of talk about some like kind of definitions. What, what is outward
2: mindset to you, Chip? Yeah. So, so I can contrast it with what we call inward mindset, right? Mm-hmm. These are just really kind of easy ways of explaining something that's pretty complex, mm-hmm. you know, at its core. And we have, we've been talking all around it this whole entire conversation. But essentially, When I'm inward or in the box, it means that I'm completely self-absorbed. I'm thinking only about what I need, you know, only where I need to go, only the things I need to get done. And so what ends up happening as a consequence of that self-absorption, that self-focus is that other people, um, their humanity gets attenuated, meaning like they're, they're less real to me. They become like cardboard cutouts or mannequins. And I start interacting with them that way. So they cease being people and they start being objects. I, I only see them in terms of how they can help me or how they can hurt me. And if they can't help me and they can't hurt me, they don't matter to me. Mm-hmm. And I interact with them that way. So I, I experience myself with an inward mindset as a person among objects. So what is an outward mindset? Well, it's, it's the reverse of that. With an outward mindset, I experience myself as a person among people. I'm alive to their reality. So I understand that every single person I interact with has hopes, needs, fears, dreams, objectives, things they have to accomplish, things that matter to them. And when I interact with them, I take that into account. And then I start considering the impact of my efforts on their ability to accomplish the things that are important to them. So in a work context, if I've got a job to do, I've got objectives to meet. I simply stay head up, head, head up and alive to the fact that other people have those things too. And I structure the things I'm doing at work in a way that actually helps people achieve their objectives. I achieve my objectives in a way that helps them achieve theirs. So it's like going with the current, right? Going downstream, sanding with the grain. So being outward is just staying alive to the reality of other people. And there's so many invitations for me to be blind to that. You know, there's so many invitations for me to prioritize the things I need over what you need. And the truth is, the core truth, no matter how hard it is to accept is, I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. I'm right here with you. And when I'm right here with you, we can transform the world, or at least our piece of it for that time that we're interacting. And that's what it means to be outward, to simply regard the humanity of other people. So, so Chip, so,
1: you know, when we found out you was on the show, you know, I've been, Look, looking you up a little bit, right? So I'm a big fan. I'm trying to be the huge, the biggest fan right now, but I am, right? So in leadership, especially when it comes to leadership, right? Listen to you a lot, talking about leadership. Um, and people, all I learn is people hate change, right? Mm-hmm. People just don't like change, right? So I got a friend, you know, Dumbo, right? In a couple months, he's about to take over, you know, a new team, Right? Uh, what is how can he use, you know, the outward mindset when he gets to his new team?
2: Yeah, great question. So, first off, let, let me offer you an alternative perspective on the change thing that might benefit him. We we tend okay. to think that people hate change. But if you look around you, we change effortlessly all the time. We are constantly changing. Sometimes we're getting better, sometimes we're getting worse. But, but change is something we're very adept at. I think what people hate is the loss of the known. So when we say mm. people hate change, I think the reality of it is, it's not the change that's bothering them so much as the fact that the change is predicated on something they're comfortable with dying off. Mm. Even if you change for the better. David, even if you're my boss, right? And you go through this profound realization that you haven't really been all you could be um, to steal an old slogan from the army, Um, if if you go through that realization and you make improvements in your leadership, I might be resistant to that because while you're not being as difficult to work with, it's new. And I didn't like when you were doing that, but I knew what to expect. And now I don't know what to expect. I've lost that anchor, right? So if your friend can understand that, right, be compassionate. You know, what they're really probably doing is mourning the loss of where they were comfortable with. You're stretching their comfort zone. That's one. Two, if I'm going into a new team, the first thing I want to be thinking about from an outward mindset, I want to put myself in their position. What would it be like to have this new boss coming in? What kind of anxiety might they have? What kind of questions might they have? What, you know, where, where would their concerns lie? And then considering that, what might I be able to do to help mitigate any stress that might be occasioned by virtue of those concerns? What do I want to say to them? And when I show up, I think what I want to say is, hey, look, I'm new here. I'm not coming in with the assumption that everything here is messed up and I'm here to fix it. I'm coming in with the assumption that everyone here is doing a really good job and working hard. What I'm going to do initially is kind of sit back and watch. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions of you as a team and of you individually. So I can get kind of a lay of the land. I want to see what's working well, what we need to reinforce. I'm going to do that before we make any changes. Now, the caveat is, if we're doing anything unethical, immoral, illegal, or unsafe, we got to stop that now. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to trust you to stop that on your own. But aside from that, I'm not in a hurry to to upset the apple cart. I'm going to watch. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow with you. And we're we're going to negotiate what kind of changes we make with an eye toward helping this team make the most meaningful contribution it can make to this mission. And then I would start having one-on-one meetings. Meetings to learn with each member of the team where I would get really curious about their experiences, just their life in general, their perspectives, uh, what they think about the job, how they understand themselves in relation to the mission, the commitment to the team. I would get so curious about them that they would start, I would start forming a picture of them as a human being that I could respond to. Instead of being tempted to see them again as pieces on a chessboard, I see them as people first. And I honor the humanity in the process. So those are kind of like some first 101 steps I would take. Build the relationship with them because ultimately, they're going to do the things they need to do to fulfill their employment obligation. In my experience, not based on your positional authority, but based on the quality of the relationship you have with them. People don't respond, Damon, to what you do so much as how they're feeling seen by you while you're doing it. That is a leadership imperative. I don't know how helpful that is, but. You can also give your friend my oh number. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely.
0: I think I'm the friend. I'm the friend. David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I like, I like, yeah, I like change. I, I welcome change. So you know, that is the thing. But I mean, I, you know, and a lot of those tools, a lot of a lot of outward mindset tools, I will use them. You know, moving forward, it's a lot of things that I want to do different uh, this next time around. Actually, um, going back to a ship to lead sellers because I am going back to a
2: ship soon to lead oh. sellers. Congratulations. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. But, uh, Damo, can I say something about change real quick? mm -hmm. Like, like, think about this. None of you were in my life three months ago. Yeah. Right. This is positive change.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. I now have people in my life that can influence me that I did not have three months ago that can offer alternative perspectives that can help me see things I don't see that can help me uncover more potential. This is change. What do I have to let go of? What's the trade-off? Well, there may be some things I'm carrying around, some paradigms or some frameworks that aren't helpful anymore. Mm -hmm. You may help open my eyes to new ways of understanding. So to your point about loving change, look, change is inevitable. We might as well lean into it. You know, fighting it is inevitable. Yeah? Yeah? So anyway, I wanted to add that little caveat to to, to what you said about change. And again, I'm so I'm so happy for you. Yeah, Like yeah, you're going to be back wait. in your environment.
0: Yeah, I can't wait. I'm, I'm oh, back yeah. in the, you oh, know, yeah. back in the mix. For all the listeners right now, and if y'all don't know, I think all of our dogs are going crazy. Uh, my dog is going crazy right now. Oh. We just changed his schedule. <laughs> so his my wife, she just started working again. So we kind of altered my dog's schedule. So he's going <laughs> crazy right now. He's Because he, he's in the room <laughs> with me just hanging out. He's going it. crazy. If, hey mom, if you're listening, now you know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, what I do want to talk about, I want to clarify something that I believe could be misconceived. And that's about um, having to discipline or hold somebody accountable while still operating with an outward mindset. I say that I believe it could be misconceived because in our class, I feel like some people wasn't understanding that, like in my thought process, I feel like I could still hold you. Treating you like a human does not always mean that I'm operating with kid gloves. Um, and can you give some clarity on how we can use the outward uh, mindset and still hold people accountable and um, enact disciplinary processes?
2: Yeah, 100%. Look, discipline is an important part of, of of helping people grow and develop in their capacity to take more responsibility. So your job as a leader primarily, is to help grow and develop people in their capacity to be more more responsible. If you're not doing that as a leader, whatever else you're doing can't be called leadership. And part of that process is helping them experience the natural consequences of their decision. See, a lot of people think like, well, my job as a leader is to hold people accountable. I think your job as a leader is to prepare, equip, and train people to be accountable. And when they fail to hold themselves accountable, natural consequences come online. Mm-hmm. So if you're my boss, Damo, and you sit down with me, you said, hey, Chip, here are my expectations. What questions do you have around those expectations? Are there any you find unreasonable? Do I have your commitment to meeting those expectations? Okay, I want you to understand, Chip, here are the consequences of not meeting them. And if you're not meeting them for whatever reason, and it's not an issue that I, you know, where I need to provide more training or support, I'm going to let those consequences uh, kick in, right? And that's all agreed upon. And then so you know next week I come in late to muster. right? So whatever the consequences were that were agreed up, that we agreed upon, I get to experience those. Maybe the first time it's a discussion you have with me where you pull me aside and say, "Chip, I need less of this and more of that mm-hmm. You know if I do it again, maybe now you're writing it down. you're documented and so forth and so on in a progressive way. This is at the core of leadership. Seeing me as a human and respecting my humanity means letting me be responsible for myself, letting me experience the consequence of my decision, positive or negative. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean serving as a proxy for those consequences by yelling and screaming at me or by indulging me and letting me get away with things. Mm -hmm. I can do almost anything in one of two ways, seeing you as a person or seeing you as an object. There's nothing the military is going to ask you to do that you can't do as a leader, while seeing people as people, including disciplining.
0: Yeah.
2: You, you, I've invited people to leave the team, terminated their employment, seeing them as people. Yeah. So it's not a mamby-pamby soft thing, to your point. It's actually one of the hardest things you can do by giving responsibility to people for their conduct. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yes. Story. Yes, totally helpful.
3: Can you talk a little bit more about or tell the story? Um, I was listening to your uh, one of your um, videos where you talked about having to terminate someone and how you treated him in the process and the self-realization that he came to in the end. Um, I'm in the legal community in the Navy, and I don't really see that done very often Um, when you're, when someone is going through the disciplinary, um, processes, um, can you just talk a little bit, like tell that story? I don't know if you know which one I'm talking It was one where there was a police officer that you had to, um, let go and he came to you later and he was thanking you. Yes. Okay.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So that, that particular officer, um, I think he was a victim of poor leadership for about 11 years. Like, I almost think at the point of hire, like he wasn't a good candidate. He was a non-sworn employee who was doing marginal work. And in their rush to hire more bodies, they just simply took him and moved him over to the policing side and had him go through the police academy. He wasn't even performing his his other duties that he was hired to do in in a a meaningful way. And so we reward him by putting more responsibility on him, which he wasn't prepared to handle. And so he goes out and like often happens in my profession, he he starts having disciplinary issues. And instead of dealing with them, they just kept transferring around from command to command. Oh, you mess up here, we're just gonna put you on another team. You mess up here, we're gonna put you on another team. That went on for over a decade. He finally lands on our team, The pattern of misconduct continues, but seeing him as a person, I realize that he's struggling and suffering. Nobody wants to be doing bad at work. We call him in and we set him down and we tell him, first of all, I'm sorry. You've been misled. You've been allowed to believe you can perform like this and still maintain your employment here, and you can't. So here's what we're going to need you to do moving forward and lay out the expectations. Long story short, he goes through the progressive discipline process. He keeps... Violating the rules, little thing here, bigger thing here. It all adds up. We get to the point where I've got to call him in and invite him to leave the department. So I call him in, I set him down, and I just laid it all out for him. I ask him. I said, uh, "I'll just call him Mark." I said, "Mark, um, you know we've I've, I've tried to train you. Uh, we've we've talked. I've mentored you. Your supervisors have mentored you. Is there anything that we have not yet done?" that we could possibly do to help you understand the impact you're having on this team? And he said, no, I mean, I think you, you've explained it. I said, okay. I said, well, listen, when you do the things you do, you make it impossible for our team to achieve its mission, to achieve its objective. It does not make you a bad guy, but it does mean you can't be part of this team any longer. So I'm gonna recommend that you separate from the department And he says, can I put in my two weeks notice instead of getting fired? Can I just put in my two weeks notice? I just don't have a termination on my record. Can I do that? And I said, I'll tell you what, I can't put you back out in the street, but I'll do that for you. I'm going to put you on administrative duty. I'll hold this packet. And if you want to resign, I'll let you do that. And so he says, thank you. And he walks out. Two hours later, he comes back in, knocks on the door. And he says, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. And he said, listen, um, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being straight with me. And I want to be honest with you. My heart hasn't been in this job for some while now. I think that's probably why I've been acting the way I've been acting. My heart's not in it any longer. And he goes, I just I just couldn't admit it to myself. I'm not happy here. I'm not happy doing this job. And he said, if you, you know, um, thank you for giving me the respect you're me. Let me put in my two weeks notice. And he says, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go on gracefully. And he did. He leaves the department. And, uh, I called him two months later to check up on him just to see how things were going, you know? And, uh, he told me, he was, I'm actually happy. I'm in, I'm enrolled in a technical school. I'm learning, uh, uh, how to work on computers, it's something I've always wanted to do. I'm actually enjoying it. And again, I just want to thank you for, for helping set me free, you know, from all the things that I had going on. So yeah, that was just one, it's one story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's if that's kind of what you were thinking about, uh, or the story you were thinking about. But
3: yes, yes, absolutely. Um, a lot of times, when I've found in my profession, and just from looking at it from my end, a lot of times when folks are going through that, they they feel like they're on the outside. They don't feel like they're um, seen yeah. as a person, and that's when they're the most vulnerable. I think. And, and it seemed like from your experience, uh, from your story, um, one, he had never been held accountable <laughs> and, and, and no one had ever, um, seen him, like really seen him as a person. And so I just thought that was like very powerful. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me to, to share that. Yeah.
1: Well, Hey Chip, I got two, two more questions yeah. for you, Chip. Right. So one, um, I want you to kind of talk a little bit about um, vulnerability. How can vulnerability help you be a, a, a good leader? And and also, I want you to, to talk about this quote I heard you say. I think your mentor, you know, said something to you about it. And, and the quote was about talking about um, feeding the fish what they like, not what you
2: like. <laughs> mm. Wow, you mm. went back on that one, David. That's a <laughs> yeah, that's Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, so oh, yeah.
2: first off with vulnerability, Um, I I think being vulnerable, the reason it's so powerful is you're not perfect. And pretending you're perfect, uh, you're you're not fooling anybody. If I come up and I'm acting like I'm the person with all the answers, people know I don't have all the answers. So why don't I just get out in front of it and admit, I need help. I'm not going to get it right all the time. This is my kind of approximation of the best thing to do based on the information I have now. Yes, I'm the leader. I will make a decision. I'm not going to waffle. But I want you to know that if I get it wrong, and ultimately I will get it wrong, I'm going to come back. I'm going to own it. We're going to reset. We're going to figure out a better way to move forward. And the thing about being vulnerable is, again, it's it humanizes you to the people you're leading. If you're this ideal this archetype of a leader who never gets anything wrong. They can't relate to you. If they can't relate to you, they can't be in relation with you. And if they can't be in relation with you, they can't work with you. So vulnerability is incredibly important. And people will, when you open yourself up in that way, they will tell you when you are making a mistake. They will care enough to come to you and give their perspective. Leaders that don't listen to people soon find themselves surrounded by people who will not talk to them. And you're a human being. You can only be aware of so much at one time. You've got so much bandwidth. So I, I think this idea of vulnerability is uh, its important on several fronts, but it is a leadership essential because you're going to be working with people. And people are always in relationship with other people. And relationships are predicated on being able to, to, to see one another in, in in your entirety, to include all your vulnerabilities, all your strengths. So hopefully that that's helpful. Um, oh yeah. And, and regarding that quote uh, about you know you 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 feed the fish or you bait the hook with what the fish likes, not with what you like. Um, I, when I was when I learned that, what I basically failed to understand when I was objectifying of my direct reports. I would teach and train them in the way that I like to be teach and, tra- teach and train, right? So I'm a visual person. I want to see visual examples. Well, not everybody's like me, but because I like learning that way, that's how I would teach everybody. Then I'd get frustrated if everybody wasn't smelling what I was stepping in, right? Well, mm-hmm. Because I'm, I'm literally, through my own biases, communicating with them in a way that I like to be communicated with without understanding their particular needs. So this idea of baiting the hook with what the fish likes, not with what I like, is I have to get to know them as a person, understand the modalities in which they learn, and modify my instruction, my delivery, in a way that they're most likely to receive. You know, fish, as far as I know, don't, don't, don't eat fried chicken on a regular basis, and that's my favorite food, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to bait the hook with what they like if I want to get a bite. That's the idea there. Mm-hmm. Metaphors all break down at some point, but that's the idea.
0: Yeah most definitely. Yeah, that's I had to, I actually me and my wife had to kind of come to a realization that we were wanting our love languages for the other person, you know, so as whereas mine was quality time and yeah, I thought that would be hers and hers so we had to come to a realization of that of that same exact thing. Like, you know, I want what I want for you and that's not the same thing.
2: Um yeah, that's a great book uh Gary Chapman uh, the yeah. book you're referencing, Love Languages. My wife, by the way, full disclosure, uh, she's acts of service and I mm-hmm. am physical touch. Yeah. yeah. Here I am rubbing her back all the time, right? <laughs> Thinking she's like really into that, digging that. And she's just kind of like, I guess he likes rubbing backs. So I'll let him do it. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it turns out when I fold the laundry for her, she's head over heels. It's crazy. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> where were you when I needed you? Damo? Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Well, here I am now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> here I am now. I'll take I, it. I'll take it. Yeah. My question is if some if I'm if I'm a listener and I want to know more about our, like, you know, I like what I, you know, just heard. And I want to know more about our mindset, where would I go?
2: Yeah. Look, uh, probably just direct you like everyone directs people these days to the website, mm-hmm. uh, which would be www.urbinger dot com. And that website is kind of an entry point to all things Arbinger. Um, it has information on our books there. We've got three international best-selling books that have been published under the Arbinger Institute name. Um, fascinating books, um, great entry points there. Uh, we have public courses that we do. So like the course that you went through, um, that was sponsored by the Navy for your unit, for your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also do public courses where just anyone can, can come and show up and, uh, and just experience a workshop. That's a great way. Again, a great entry point uh, into our work. So yeah, the websites, uh, is, is the place to go, uh, without a doubt, www.arbinger.com. I don't know if you want to put that in the show notes or how you all do that, but, um, that's what I would, I would direct people toward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my, my other question, um, but while I did want you to know that, um, as as we incorporated all of this into like our everyday, you know, life and um, you know, command, which I did tell you already, um, I want the listeners to know. Well, I got a little confused, my dog gone crazy, but I want the listeners to know <laughs> that uh, it's not just a course. It's not just one course. And I actually did want you to know something. We we did outward leadership uh, recently, so they got they got somebody to do our our leadership. But I want the listeners to know that it's not just a course. It's a you, you could continue this even after the I don't, was was our course two or three days. You had a two day workshop. Okay, so even after the two day workshop, you could continue this is the website and and I like and appreciate that it's a lot of follow up, a lot of follow through. It's not just hey, we're gonna do this workshop, drop a bomb, leave. You know what I'm saying? It's a whole lot of follow up. So I do appreciate that.
2: Well, and I'll tell you this now, people don't know this is the first time I've ever said this publicly because we're just getting this started, but I am right now at the beginning stages of working in partnership uh, with my Arbinger team to create a brand new leadership course. We're going to spend this year producing that course, and I am so excited about it. We're going to reimagine outward leadership and it is so cool. We are just now putting together cohorts from around the world. Um this is going to be an amazing opportunity. Tomo, I can't wait for you to experience the new course. If, if if everything stays on production schedule, spring 2024 get some. It's going to be like I I I'm I, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but I already know it's going to be awesome. We are going to make the best leadership course that there is. I'm looking forward to it.
3: It's good to hear Like like the the course and the Arbinger, how do you say it? Arbinger, the Arbinger course, and that it's being um, uh, introduced into the Navy, Navy leadership, because it almost seems like the Navy's mindset has to shift now um, as we're, having issues with recruiting and just the mindset of the people that we're bringing in are much different than the mindset of when we were in, it was like a do as I say, and you don't ask questions. Um, and you didn't really have to care about the people too much, (laughs) but now the, the mindset of, or the, the, um, I guess the mindset of the people who are coming in, we can't have that same, just do as I say, get the mission done, type of type of mind that we have to have an outward mindset now. And so it's good to see that the Navy is recognizing that and we're having these courses. I only have three months left at my command, and I'm like, how can I get this as a parting gift before I leave? <laughs> how can I get this in front of people? Um, because senior leaders a lot of times complain so much about the millennials and Gen Z um, because you have to care about the person more than you care about yeah. the mission. Um, and we have the, what is it? The ship shipmate self um, mentality. And it's almost like now we have to have the shipmate ship mm. self mentality. We have to kind of shift the focus. Um because it just doesn't, it just, the way we've been doing it just does not work now, um, and it very much shows because we, we can't keep people in, uh, or, or I say, I won't say we can't, but it's hard to keep people in, and it's hard to get people in to the military. Um, so I, I'm I'm gonna have to figure out how I can get this as a gift to my command yeah. as I leave. Well, good
2: luck. <laughs> if there's anything I can do to be helpful, let me know and. You know, it's funny that that kind of ordinal relationship uh, between ship, shipmate, self—like, like when we say it that way—the the reason that I struggle with that, it's kind of archaic in the sense that you know, it, it implies that that there's a prioritized relationship between those three things. But mm-hmm. another way of conceiving of it would be: we've got the mission. And those are all aspects of the mission, right? So it's not that one's more important than the other. It requires all three of those aspects working together in order to perpetuate the mission, right? There's going to be times you lean more heavy Mm -hmm. on the shipmates. There's going to be times you lean more heavy into the mission. We're just going to have to get this done. We've got this many hours, this much time. we got to suck it up. There's going to be times when you have to step back and take a knee. And say, look, I'm just a little overwhelmed here. I need to have a little bit of me time. Mm -hmm. I need some help, right? I need a break, and all those things I think are equally important. So I really like the fact that you're Mm -hmm. thinking that way. Um, You know, the the, people want to complain about millennials or Gen Z now. I guess you know they want to complain Mm -hmm. about them. People have been complaining about the younger generation since at least ancient Greece. (laughs) I mean, this ain't new. Like yeah. uh somebody somewhere thought the World War II veterans were wimps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and, and so it's it they're not the problem. The problem is, in my from my perspective, this is just Chip Hughes' perspective, the problem is the failure on the part of leadership to adapt to what oh, those folks that are coming in right need right from us. Yeah. Right? We need to learn to adapt our delivery without compromising our principles, just adapt our delivery and be, and be a little more inclusive in the, in, in the idea generation process. You know, well, what about asking people, you know, what are you hoping to get out of a career here? You know, what do you think this is? You know, maybe what should it be so that we can better meet the needs of the folks that want to come in and serve? Yeah. So that's great. I'm glad. I love to hear you. I love to hear you thinking that way. Yeah.
0: Hey Chip, for me, man, um, I appreciate you. I appreciate uh, everything that I learned from this course. Uh, um, Thanks for coming and uh, sitting down with us uh, again and uh, talking to us and shedding some light on the course. I hope what people could get out of this is enough about the outward mindset to be a little bit more curious. right? So that was my whole goal. Um, Hopefully that's what people uh, got out of this and now start to ask more questions. I think that this is a game changer for Everywhere, really, everywhere. Like I want the whole world to, you know, know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Um, the next Avatar movie, we need to talk about outward mindset in there somewhere, right? We need to throw something in there, James Cameron. So yeah, I do. I want I want this to spread. So I appreciate you uh sitting down uh with us and hopefully our listeners uh do kind of take from this and carry on with it. So uh thanks from me, thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Hey, in the same here, Chip. Hey, thank you. Um, and I already been talking to, to Dumbo about how we can get this at our command. So, me and Teach had the same command. So, maybe we can get this for you on your way out. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I'm most definitely gonna be looking looking into it. Um, because this is like Dumbo said, a freaking game changer. Like, and me just googling you and and, and talking about it and seeing you talk has been a game changer for me. And now I'm talking for myself. So it's a game changer. So um, I'm looking forward to to getting more involved with it too.
3: Yeah, same. I, I think I started doing research and just like the two of you, like I, became, I started to become a fan. Just this morning, I was like brushing my teeth and I, I have Chip playing in the <laughs> background <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm brushing my teeth just to kind of get my mindset going. And actually like a few days ago, um, my sailors before, and I forget which video I'd watched, um, but it started to kind of open my eyes. And so before my sailors left the next day, um, I, I told them, I was like, before you leave today, you have to give me three things that we can do better in the office. And it, it just made me want to get to the minds of them and what are they thinking? And they didn't even at that moment like want to completely open up cuz i wanted the raw and they didn't really give me the raw at first but yesterday they started to kind of get a little bit more into okay well this person makes me feel this way and i don't like this and um so yet like the just in the short time frame of just watching the videos in preparation. It's just like, mind blowing. I see everything so much, so much different. And I'm just, I was excited about today. Um, and I was telling them I had, I had a meeting, um, and I'm sitting there like, I got somebody very important. I cannot miss this. <laughs> like, I gotta go, sir. <laughs> so, um, I'm just very encouraged by what you're doing um, and the path that you've gone through, and just for being open with us and and sharing like your your past and your upbringing. I'm glad we went that far back because I didn't really see a lot when I was trying to figure out, like, okay. Who is Chip from the beginning? Um, I didn't really see a lot of that, and I think that was what was the most impactful today for me is seeing Chip in the raw, Chip in the unperfected <laughs> Chip, and seeing the journey go you can through see that every so, day. Yeah this this has been this has been amazing. I'm, I'm gonna fire my therapist, <laughs> and I'm just gonna watch <laughs> out, out, outward. <laughs> What is Man, the outward mindset today? videos? That's
2: going to oh be my therapy. <laughs> Look, you all, you all are amazing. I, I can't tell much. I appreciate your graciousness, giving me so much of your time and, and just helping get my mind spinning and churning. Um, it, it's just such a gift. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to connect with you again down the road. If there's anything I can ever do to be helpful, uh, you know, please obviously reach out and, uh, you know, Dom will please share my, share my number with, uh, with teacher, with Damon. Mm-hmm. And if they want to get a hold of me, you know, um, you know, as you know, I, I will return all my texts or calls, so. Thank you. Appreciate it. Most definitely.